The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Well, it's good to be here with you. We're talking about the greatest subject in the world today. Uh, I, I wish I could say I studied it to bless everybody and help everybody, but I actually worked through about 10 years of doubts in my life, pretty serious doubts, and the resurrection was the answer, and I hope to share some of those things with you this morning. You know, I had a student years ago, he wasn't a particularly good student, he was fun to have in class, remember those kind of guys? Um, Funny, kept people, kept things moving, but didn't get the material real well. And he said one time, whenever I take one of your exams... I don't know a word goes in the blank. I put the word resurrection, and I know I will get at least half credit. <laughs> and he actually took an exam one time where I flipped the page. Church history, you know how there's blanks. And uh, he wrote resurrection, 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 resurrection. Flipped the page, wrote it two or, more, th- two or three more times, and left the rest of the exam blank and handed it in. He got about half credit. <laughs> but he is right about something. The resurrection is tied into almost every area of faith and practice in the Christian faith. Over 300 verses in the New Testament, and it's connected to almost every major area of theology and most of the major areas of practice. They're true because of the resurrection, according to the New Testament writers. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you have your uh, Bibles <clears throat> and just introduce a topic here, or introduce the first few things. And I'm going to come down to the floor, and for the rest of the message, I'm going to walk off a timeline on the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 is often called the resurrection chapter. 15 glorious verses on this wonderful theme. And this might surprise you, but 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels were. So it's one of the earliest, it's the earliest extended treatment. And it's one of the earliest treatment, even of brief verses, in the New Testament. Now, Paul goes to Corinth in chapter 15, verse 1, and he's already there. He's writing the book shortly afterwards. And New Testament scholars frequently say, this is the most easily ascertainable date in the New Testament, is when Paul went to Corinth. Because we're told who was in charge of that area, Uh, We might call him a mayor today. It's not the word they used, but he might be called a mayor. And now there's an inscription in rock found. And these fellows had one-year appointments. That's all. And the inscription in rock says he was there from 51 to 52 A.D. If Paul came during his time, it was 51 to 52 in Corinth. And he says to the Corinthians, first two verses, he basically, if I paraphrase, He basically says, I preached the gospel to you. I gave the gospel to you, and your relationship with God is determined by where you are vis-a-vis the gospel. Now, I do a lot of writing, and I often write academically, so I'm going to have footnotes. And when I say the word gospel, I would have a, a footnote here. And the footnote would say, what is, what is the gospel? Now, there's two sides of the gospel. God's side 
our side. And we respond whether we know or not, because, of course, not responding is a no. And getting involved is a yes. More about that in a second. But God's side of the gospel involves at least, and these, these three are always present when the gospel is defined in the New Testament, the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Other things are mentioned sometimes. Burials mentioned. Once Paul says, uh, born of a woman. And I take it that's the emphasis between son of God and what we read up there today, that he's a man, born of a woman. But always, deity, death, resurrection. Deity, death, resurrection. Deity, death, resurrection. Now, I get emails from people, and they say, you always say this deity word, and I don't see it anywhere in Scripture. Well, that's a catch-all term that Jesus is more than a man, and it's usually described in three titles that are present. Here it's Christ, beginning with verse 3. It's Christ. And that's probably the weaker of the three words, by definition. The strongest of the three words is Lord, because in the New Testament, the word Lord is the word that's translated It is the equivalent of Jehovah in the Old Testament. You don't get any higher than that, talking about God. Lord, second, Son of God, and third, Christ, or Messiah. Then you have to ask who who Christ is. So here he's Christ, but in a very similar passage, 1 Corinthians 11, keep keep that passage in mind. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul starts the same way as in verse 3. And he says, I gave you what I was given. Notice verse 3 says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. And I'm going to come down and start with that in just a moment. But there he's called Lord. Here he's Christ. There he's Lord. Died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Was buried, rose again. And this is the longest list of appearances. The earliest extended text has the longest list of appearances of the risen Jesus. So, this will get us started. And the words there in verse 3 are very, very simple and very, very involved. And I often, when I'm reading this, I'll say, I delivered unto you, first of all, and that's often translated as a first importance. I delivered unto you as a first importance what I also received. And I'll stop and I'll say, did you all hear that? I gave you what I was given. And you might say, yeah, okay, keep going. I'm pretty quick. I, I can pick that up. I gave you what I was given. But this is heavy, heavy wording. And here's the reason. In the New Testament, there's an exciting answer to the question, <clears throat> what was the earliest preaching, or what did it consist before there was a first book? Now, I'm going to start my timeline here, and I'm going to go down here. Now, that's creation, way down there. That's 2018, way down there. This is ground zero. Ground zero is the crucifixion. The date varies a little bit from scholar to scholar. It's almost always said to be 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., and you go, why the gap? Well, you have to get the moon right for Passover, but 30 is the most common year. But we're going to call it ground zero because we're going to have a little bit of audience participation here in a minute. And we're going to count how far it is from this event. Why? Because in the ancient world, if you're going to do history, if you're going to do any kind of history, but especially in the ancient world, it's hard to get two major prerequisites 
And much of our ancient history does not have one or both of these. The two prerequisites are the two E's, early and eyewitness. Early and eyewitness. And someone stops me and they'll say, well, come on, eyewitnesses can lie. Eyewitnesses can be wrong. To which your response is, yes, they can be. But what do you want? Do you want sources from hundreds of years later that are not eyewitness? Maybe you think they're better. No, that's why in the court of law, we put a lot of emphasis on early and eyewitnesses. You can be an eyewitness and not tell a story for 50 years, like the man who wrote his memoirs of World War II in 1990. You wouldn't say he's lying at all, but that's a long time to wait. So not all eyewitnesses are early eyewitnesses. All right, do we have that for Jesus, early eyewitnesses? That's what this whole message is about. But if this is creation down there, and this is the crucifixion of Jesus, here's the most exciting question, I think, in early theology. Of what did the earliest preaching and teaching consist before there was a single New Testament book? And on my timeline, that would be about here. There are no New Testament books before possibly the late 40s A.D. And those early, those early candidates would be 1 Thessalonians from 48 to 50. And by the way, these dates, critics and believers put them in the same place. 1 Thessalonians about 40 to, uh, 48 to 50. Galatians could be in there, but there's debate about that. And James may be in there. But you have basically 20 years here with no New Testament books. No New Testament books. Now, how do you know what they preached during that time? And of course, critics are happy to say, oh yeah, well you know how fast myth comes up and everything. Well, here's the answer. In the New Testament, there are dozens of little tiny, they go by almost synonyms, little words like creeds, traditions, confessions. You go, you say there's dozens of them? Yeah. Buried in the New Testament books? Yeah. How do I know? Because they tell you. Like what? Well, Paul says, we're back to verse 3, I gave you what I was given. And Josephus tells us that Pharisees taught, as any good teacher teaches, by repetition and by passing on data from the past. Repetition and tradition are two important things. And that's what they did during this time. Now, you say, well, I read an article last week that said Jesus' audience was up to 70% illiterate. Seems to be true. That figure's going to change a little bit with scholarship, but up to 70% illiterate. How do you write for somebody who's illiterate? Easy. Easy? They can't sign their name and it's easy? It is easy. Watch this. Here's a secular example. Jack and Jill went up a hill to... How'd y'all know that? And I won't ask you who here can't want write your name, but if you were illiterate, you could learn Jack and Jill. Am I right? All right, here's a Christian example. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that... How'd you know that? Memorize it, right? How many songs come on TV that introduce whatever, and you can sing it, and then you notice your four-year-old running around the house singing the same song? So, you put material into a da-da-da-da-da-da-da form, and you can learn it really well in a song because you connect it with, with notes 
and it could be a little ditty like Jack and Jill without music. Or how about uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G? I remember when I was little, Jiminy Cricket from the old Walt Disney program, spelling encyclopedia, E-N-C-Y-C-L-O-P-E-D-I-A, if you remember that little song. And you don't have to write. I, didn't, I couldn't write in those days. Still don't write so well. Um, so, in the New Testament, there are dozens of those little ditties. You go, well, how do you know that? You've got to be really good in Greek. And, I mean, I minored in it, but I'm not really good in Greek by a mile. And you ask scholars, and the syntax is broken in these places. And many, the Bible you're holding may do this. Translations are starting to do it. But many Bibles set these, ver- these, these texts off in verse. Good example, Philippians 2, a hymn. Colossians 1, Jesus is the creator. There's other texts like this one, 1 Corinthians 15, the one you read for uh, communion, uh, Eucharist. 1 Corinthians 11, I deliver unto you that which I received from the Lord. And you'll know these words, um, that Jesus, the same, that Lord, he didn't call him Jesus, excuse me, the Lord, the same night which he was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it, broke it, gave thanks, saying, this is my body, which is, and after he took the cup. And there's, they're all over. And 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the most famous one because it concerns the gospel. What's the gospel? I didn't say this last night, but I like to say the gospel, to say it Christianly, you would say is the scarlet ribbon that runs through the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, into the New Testament. To say it in a secular kind of way, it's the yellow brick road. You stay on the yellow brick road till you get to the Emerald City. And that's an interesting, back in the 30s, that's an interesting, interesting story, the yellow brick road in the Emerald City. You know that in the book of Revelation, 21 and 22? Of all the descriptive verses, about one-third of the descriptive verses in Revelation are precious stones that make up the kingdom, and this is called the Emerald City. wonder about the imagery there and how, you know, Christian <clears throat> it may be. But the point is, stay on the road. Ignore the, apples, ignore the apple trees, the trees that throw the apples at you. Stay on the road. Lions and tigers and bears. There you go. And... We have to stay on the road no matter what. Pilgrim progress, stay on the road no matter what. And that's the gospel. That's why this is so well known. Because let me tell you something. This might be the most important single thing I say during this message. As long as the gospel message of Christianity is true, and it's the most evidenced part of our faith, as long as he's the Son of God, Lord, Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and raised from the dead, Christianity's true. So I often answer questions in class. Someone says, well, what about this? D- does the Old Testament teach genocide? What about this? What about this? I said, stay in course. Let's just do our lesson. We'll go back to genocide later. But for now, is he the son of God? Did you... Yeah, but what about eternal security? What about the age of the earth? What about the... And everybody wants to get us off. And Christians are really good at that, getting off the road. And the point is, is he the son of God? Did he die on the cross? Did he rise from the dead? Let's talk about that. Okay? So, this is, this is crucifixion. Ground zero. 
Often if you ask Christians, how do we know it's true? Early eyewitness, how do you know it's true? The answer most Christians give is, and I'm going to use critical dates. Evangelicals would date a little earlier, not much, but I'm going to try to show you, you can use their material and you get a resurrection. You may may not have heard that before. Uh, I'll tell you when that part of it starts. But this is the Gospel of Mark, and people usually say, Mark's good on the crucifixion. Mark at about 70, evangelicals would say 60, but Mark at 70, there's an early fragment, by the way, that's just been dated by one paleographer anyway, that puts this early fragment of Mark, a fragment, a copy, at 80 to 110 A.D. So now scholars are saying that would move Mark back to here. If a copy's from 80-ish, Mark may be back here. But the most typical date, Mark at 70. Okay, audience participation. Mark is 70 or plus what from the cross? 30, 80, okay, 40 years. Matthew at 80 or plus? How far after ground zero? 50. Luke, 85 or plus? 55, and everybody puts John at about 95 or plus? Plus what? I know it's early. 65. Plus 65. 65 is as bad as the Gospels get. I told you about the fellow who wrote his memoirs of World War II at plus 50, and no one says he's a liar. And that covers all the books but John, basically. John's 10 years later. This is early. You have to understand the ancient world. I debated an atheist one time, and he just got done telling the group, and it really really bothered me because he was saying things that just were not true. And he said, for example, the Gospels are all too late. You can't remember things that long. Really? You can't remember things that long? Mark is plus 40, according to critics, plus 30, according to Testament scholars. Okay, watch this. How many of you remember certain key events in your life? You're sure if the original tape were played, you would be right on the major things. Now, this could be your marriage. This could be standing there or lying there when your first child is born. This could be a major death in your family. But do you remember the details? How, how many people are, re, are sure of events in their lives at plus 30? Okay, the critical date, plus 40. How many of you? How many of you know things that we're going to start losing a few hands here? How many of you remember things at plus 50? It's Matthew. How many you're sure of things at plus 55? There's a lot of hands here. Okay, that's good. And how many of you are sure of certain things in your life from plus 65? You're sure. There's a couple dozen hands up. You're sure. Okay, so I said to this guy, you're telling me that's too long? At If you go back to 60 on Mark, like, like I said, like conservatives do, you're telling me that plus 30 to plus 65 is too long? He said, yeah. I said, how long ago was Alexander? How long were the sources after Alexander? He said, oh, we know a lot about Alexander. Do we? Yeah, Philip's his dad, military genius, took over the world, beat the, uh, the uh, Syrian army, which was 
incredible, and he just walked right over him and went all the way to India and died at a very young age. Yeah, we know all that stuff. What's the earliest source for Alexander? If that's Alexander, ground zero, and Alexander dies about 300 years before Christ, what's the earliest major source? Earliest major source on our timeline? That's John. I'm serious. The earliest written source for Alexander is just short of 300 years later. Anybody remember things from 300 years later? Oh, you don't? But he was sure about Alexander. And oftentimes the critics say, well, that's because Alexander's sources are history. The Gospels are propaganda. They're doing religion. Really? I'm glad the historians weren't doing history. For Alexander, that's just the first source. The two best sources for Alexander, Arian and Plutarch, plus four and a quarter to 450, almost half a millennium, are the best sources for Alexander. And you know how the book starts? It's pure history, right? No religion. Here's how Plutarch's Alexander starts. It's commonly believed that Alexander was the son of God and his mother was a virgin. Someone might say, wow, is that where we got our idea of a virgin? No. You know how late this guy wrote? He wrote about 120 AD, almost 100 years after Jesus. Guess who had the story first? Okay, so in the ancient world, this argument from the Gospels is fine. There's probably... No, I won't say none, but there's probably no religious background at the center of faith of any religion that starts at 40 and goes to plus 65. It's extremely early. Now, this side, I'm going to move over to here. From this side on, I'm using only data that critics will grant. Atheist New Testament scholars, you say, are there some of those? Many. Many atheist, agnostic, skeptic New Testament scholars with PhDs in New Testament, they are unbelievers. They will tell you they are unbelievers. Well, how about I teach New Testament? Well, it's a discipline. It's not their faith, but it's a discipline. It's their job. It's what they do. Some of them have lost their faith. But they're atheist New Testament scholars. Many of them in print. Well, how do you know? Because I've counted takes a while to go through these. My bibliography in the resurrection is 3,500 sources. A lot is written on this, and a lot are skeptics. And I'd rather talk to the skeptics because they're usually clearer about the dates. And starting here, I'm going to use their material. They can see this material. And ask, ask while I'm doing this, is this a good argument for the resurrection with the two E's, early and eyewitness? Okay, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Remember, he came to Corinth about 51 to 52 A.D. When's he writing the book? About 55, maybe 53. Well, the critics say that? Absolutely, they say that. I usually say it's 55. And I'm reading to, running to atheists and agnostic New Testament scholars all the time who say 53. Something I'll tell you. Paul is the critic's darling. They like him. Of the 13 books that bear his name... 
they will give you seven all the time, same seven. Some of them will give you more, but they always give you seven. Bart Ehrman, the best-known skeptic in North America, an atheist New Testament scholar, calls these the undisputed Pauline books, seven. You know what they are? If your pastor were preaching a series on Paul, these would almost totally be the books he would use, and they're granted. Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, the first four in the New Testament, Philippians, First Thessalonians, and the little one chapter, Philemon. You know, they think they're inspired? No, no, no. They don't think they're inspired. They're atheists. They don't think there's a God. But they think they're authentic. Paul's a scholar. Right place, right time, studying her Gamaliel. The guy basically had a PhD in Old Testament. He's a scholar. Just read his things. I had an atheist buddy years ago who said, you want to know, if, you want to doubt if Paul's a philosopher? He said, read the book of Romans. I said, why would you say that? To show he's a philosopher. He says, look the way he puts an argument together. The guy knew how to think. He's brilliant. And this guy was the best known atheist in the world, Anthony Flew. So, we have early material. I'm only going to use two texts, 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 1, the end of Galatians 1, beginning Galatians 2. And remember, there's no chapter dividings in the original. So, Paul's writing. He says, I came to you, Corinthians, and I gave you this. And remember, gospel, yellow brick road, scarlet ribbon. It's the key. It's what gets us to heaven. Jesus is son of God, died for our sins, rose from the dead. What do you do with him? That's the other side of the gospel. What are you doing, by the way? The word for believe in the New Testament, very strong word. It's not like, yeah, I believe George Washington was first president of the United States. That's not the way believe is used in the New Testament. There are some uses of it like that for unbelievers. But when people come to Christ, the word believe means to, well, both Peter and John say walk in his steps. When the, God, when the disciples believed in Jesus, they left their nets and left their boats and followed him. The rest is history. So believing means, I think the closest words in English are, I do. I do. Only, as I found out, my wife passed away of uh, stomach cancer in 1995. I was shocked that I hadn't paid attention to the words. On your wedding night, you don't always listen to all the words. And it says, till death do we part. And I went to Social Security to get some money for my kids, to put some money in an account for my kids. And the woman said to me, when was your marriage terminated? I didn't think of terminated. I still have my ring on. Marriages get terminated, but eternal life does not. That's where Christianity is better than I do. But the commitment part of I do is similar. All right, that's, a, that's our side. God did it. We say I do. All right. Paul's there. Now, I could stop right here. This, this sermon could be over. You go, good, I need some coffee. Um, this sermon could be over at plus 21. How many of you really remember plus 21? You remember things from 21 years ago? You're sure? Folks, it's, it, it's like over half the crowd here. So you tell the story right. Nobody questions that you can't get something right at 21. But Paul said those magic words in verse 3. I gave you what I was given. Oh, when and from whom did he get it? And we're looking for, we're already early eyewitnesses right here. Critics even admit Paul was an, they will tell you, Paul is an eyewitness to a resurrection appearance. And they'll dispute what a resurrection appearance is, but they will say, yes, Paul was a 
witness to a resurrection appearance. When did it happen? When did Paul get this material? Critics, this is the consensus New Testament position. You can read an atheist, you can read an evangelical with a PhD in New Testament. And they're going to put that event at about plus five. Come on. Where's your verse? All right. Just 21 years later, Paul said, I gave you what I was given. How do you get this? Can you do the math for me? Yes, I can. Here's the cross. When does Paul meet Jesus on the way to Damascus? An event that critics submit. When did Paul beat Jesus? That's like asking, how soon after Acts 1 does Acts 9 happen? Answer, some people say one year, two, or three. That's basically it. One, two, or three. Let's take an average. Jesus dies. Paul meets Jesus plus two. In Galatians chapter 1, remember Paul's authoritative. He's the critic's darling. He says, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem plus three, right? Jesus, plus two, Paul, plus three, he goes to Jerusalem, plus five. He spends 15 days with Peter and James. What an amazing time. Bart Ehrman, the back to the atheist New Testament critic, he lists this right here, Paul spending 15 days. He lists this as one of the two most incredible arguments for the historicity of Jesus, an atheist. One of the two most incredible arguments for the historicity of Jesus. Plus five. In the words of uh, another genera- last generation, a, a Cambridge New Testament scholar, the New Testament, C.H. Dodd, very prominent name, he said this, Paul spent 15 days with Peter and James, and it's safe to say they did more than talk about the weather. Great comment. What did they talk about? The whole book of Galatians is about the nature of the gospel. I'll give you the theme of Galatians in one long sentence. Here's Galatians. It's all about the gospel. Get it right. Don't make it bigger. Don't make it smaller. Preach it. Stay with it. Anything else is heresy, period. That's Galatians. Get the gospel right. What were they talking about? Well, we're going to see in a moment. Paul tells us they were talking about the gospel. He tells us, whoa. So he gets the gospel, yeah, at plus five, yeah. They had it before him, right? They're going to give, Paul probably heard firsthand. He may have heard for the first hand, for the first time, their experiences with the risen Jesus. Paul knew about his, but he may have heard their testimony for the first time. It's incredible. Now, then at the beginning of Galatians 2, there's only few verses in there. Paul says, 14 years later, I went back up Jerusalem, second trip. Guess who's here? Paul, Peter, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Actually, she probably was there. That was her place of residence. Peter, Paul, James, and now Peter, Paul, and James are there. Peter, Paul, James and John. Why am I making such a big deal of this? Because the four, nobody's close to them in influence in the early church. You've got the big four. Peter, Paul, James, and John. Now this is James, 
the brother of Jesus, not James, the son of Zebedee, not John's brother. He's dead. He's killed by Herod. He's the first disciple to be killed by somebody else. I'm not talking about Judas, Judas um, suicide. All right, so all four are here. And Paul specifically says, I set before them the gospel I was preaching. You see, we're all on the same page. Well, don't keep us waiting. We're all on the same page. Right after that, five words in English. They added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. Listen, if somebody blows the gospel, they leave out the resurrection, which, by the way, happens all the time. When you read tracts, I've had students survey a number of tracts, and about 50% of them leave out the resurrection. They get deity and cross and leave you there. Well, if you leave Jesus on the cross, I mean, if he never came off, we read verses just this morning, without the resurrection, your faith is vain. Paul says it twice. All right, so they added nothing to me. And in verse 9, they lay hands. They give Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. We never lay hands on heretics, right? We anoint them for missions, elders. Some people do it for deacons ministers who join your staff but it's somebody you love and agree with and they laid hands on paul and barnabas okay we're getting the end here that's only plus 14 but there's two groups one with john one without john and they're going over the gospel of the deity death resurrection of jesus and they all agree. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 11, right after the text we just read, Paul says, verse 11, talking about the appearances, he says, whether it is them or whether it is me, so we teach and so you believe. Here's what Paul's saying. I don't care who you ask. You want to ask Peter instead of me? Ask Peter. Ask John. Ask James, the brother of Jesus. Or you can ask me. I'm right here. You can ask me, but we'll all tell the same story. You know what we call that? Verified eyewitness testimony from an early date. Now we're getting the best there is. Okay, but this is only when Paul received it, plus five. Their testimony, he had his at plus two. But Paul hears theirs. Wait a minute, but if they gave it to Paul, they had it before Paul. And how long did it take to go from the event itself to the da-da-da-da-da-da-da part? Oh, well, that was a little bit after the cross, too. Bingo, we're right there. If you do it this way, it looks like this. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da, so we can proclaim it. They're giving their testimony. Paul hears it. Folks, critics say, critics say, like James D.G. Dunn, as influential as any historical Jesus scholar today, not an evangelical. And he says the dot, the dot, the dot, the dot part, which 1 Corinthians 15 is written that way, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following. It was memorized, he said, within months. Well, we know the crucifixion was in spring. That means that this dot, the dot, the dot part could be before the end of the year. When's the event? 30 AD. When was the proclamation? 30 AD. How are we sure we don't forget it? 
da 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 Jack and Jill always run up the same hill, <laughs> and they always fall down and spill their water and crack their heads. Always happens. That's how you tell the story of Jesus, so nobody gets the story wrong. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You could change the verse, but somebody will say to you, that's not the way the song goes. That's how they spread resurrection. Folks, there's nothing like this in the ancient world. Nothing like this. Every religion will tell you, every philosophy too, every political view will tell you you're wrong. Uh Uh-uh, no way, you got it wrong. But you know something? Christianity is the only major religion that has reasons for what it believes. Historical, early eyewitness reasons. Nobody can compete with us. I'll say that's a bunch of baloney. See, that's what they do. They go, no, no, no. But let them prove it with their yes. Where's their yes answers? A book on my shelf from Buddha. The, the, the author is collecting key Buddhist scriptures. He's a PhD, Buddhist. And he says, don't, he says, you Christians, page one, you Christians, don't look for data like you have. We don't have the words of our Lord, Buddha. We don't have the words of our Lord, or those who studied under him, or those who studied under those who studied under him. You have it all. We don't. We don't even know what Buddha taught. But these are really beautiful scriptures, so I'm giving them to you. Okay, wonderful. But they don't go back to Buddha. And then he says later in the book, on the chapter on Buddha's words, he says, I just remind you, we don't have Buddha's words. And he says the writings in this book are five to 800 years after Buddha lived. Five to 800 years later. Zoroaster, plus 1300. Krishna, Hinduism. If he lived, you go, well, some people question Jesus. Yeah, bloggers, I mean, bloggers who aren't scholars. Scholars, no matter how liberal you are, Bartleman says, as far as he knows, nobody holds a university position and holds that Jesus doesn't exist, no matter how liberal they are. But most Hindu scholars, according to one source, say that they don't believe Krishna lived. But if he did, you know how uh, the earliest source we have, that we have the Bhagavad Gita, you know how long afterwards that we have the copy? 42, not years, 4,200 years. So Buddha's actually quite good at 500 to 800. And what are we? Right on ground zero. Amazing. These texts were already around when Paul was converted. Paul reports them as if with a footnote. Well, folks, at the end of the chapter, Paul says three wonderful things. He says, be steadfast. Your labor is not in vain. And then he says, go back three verses. He says, this is not poetry. Read the commentaries. He's trash-talking Satan. He really is. He's challenging Satan. We sang it today. He's challenging Satan. And here's what he's saying. I'm juicing it up a little bit. But here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, death, where's your sting? You got something? You got nothing. Because my Lord was raised from the dead. My Lord, get, get it? My Lord was raised from the dead. That's the gospel. Lord raised dead. That's the gospel. You've got nothing. What? I know you can hurt me. I know you still got some sting. You've hurt me before, but you're going to lose. You've lost your best weapon, death. 
The battle's over. Yep, some more people are going to get killed. The battle's going to go on, but we won the decisive war. It's called the resurrection. Satan's defeated. Satan is defeated. It's the number one answer to pain and suffering. There's other answers, but it's the number one answer to pain and suffering. Christianity is true because of a documented event that conquers death, that shows Jesus is the Son of God. By the way, no founder of a major world religion claimed to be God. Except Jesus, no founder. You, you assume they all do. Buddha was an atheist in the earliest writings. Only Jesus does this, and he's verified. Folks, death wears your sting. Grave wears your victory. I leave with you this morning the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter 14, verse 19. Because I live ye shall live also. Because he lives, you, you will live also. Heavenly Father, as we listen to Dr. Habermas, as we hear the evidence for what it is that we believe, those reliable words that have been passed down to us, that we would know the certainty of what we've been taught. Father, my prayer this morning for all of us as a church, as your church, is that we wouldn't simply celebrate the facts of the resurrection, but that, Father, every single one of us would celebrate the implications that come with it. A Savior who died, who rose again, who promised to give to every single one of us a new life, a life that we couldn't have on our own, that we couldn't find on our own, certainly a life that we didn't deserve on our own. Father, that's the implication that comes with the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the evidence that you've given to us. Thank you so much that we have the confidence to know in what it is that you have done, and what it is that you will continue to do in your church and in each one of our lives. All this we thank you for in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our risen Lord and Savior.